Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 189, The Founder Incubator with David Brim and Austin Peterson of The Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. 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 The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, I hope you're having a great day wherever you are around the world. Welcome to the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am the host of this podcast and all this, also the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. And uh, if you're new to this podcast, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation to really get them to unpack and distill and show you what it takes to build and grow a successful business. And uh What can I say, guys? Um, I've been doing this podcast for a while now, and uh, I have a celebration to share. It's actually this, uh, you know, uh, literally this time uh, five years ago, I actually started Founder and launched it. It's been five years. Well, total four, but fifth birthday, which is absolutely insane. Um, So I'm really, really excited uh, because we're doing a bit of a fifth birthday month and celebration. We've got so much cool content and stuff coming. I'm writing all this content. We're doing like a special, uh, how do you say it's a special birthday promotion. Um, and uh, yeah, a lot of stuff happening, but it's just, um, I guess, really amazing just, I guess, to the thought that an idea that I conceived in my mind uh, has, you know, I've, I've brought to life, created it from nothing. Uh, with hardly any money off the back of a credit card. And, you know, here we are, like, you know, Founders content now is consumed by millions of people every single month. And we're not going to slow down. You know, my mission and and the vision of the company is, 
you know, how can we turn Founder into a household name entrepreneurial brand that impacts the lives of tens of millions of people on a monthly basis? So that's kind of what we're working on. And it's just crazy to think that five years ago, I had this crazy idea to launch this magazine. And the first day that we launched, we made $5.50. And that was March 5th, 2013. And here we are five years later. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time, being part of the founder community. We're building something very, very special here, this movement. And please do share it with your friends, uh, anything, any of our content. Please do check out all of our other stuff we got going on. Go to founder.com, F-O-U-N-D-R.com. Anyways, let's talk about today's, both of today's guests. Uh, we're doing a bit of a mix-up. We're mixing up the content over, you know, the next few weeks for the founder fifth birthday special. And, uh, Basically, um, you guys always request this. You like to hear somebody in the trenches uh, that um, has a business, and then we got an expert to come in and actually help them. So we got my friend David Brim. He's been on a podcast before, and he runs a company called Tom Car, and uh, they build uh, off-terrain uh, vehicles. And then the person that's being mentored, his name is Austin Peterson. And uh, he's one of our uh, really successful community members. He actually did one of our training programs, uh, one of our courses, online courses called Instagram Domination. Because um, I don't know if you guys know this, but we've had a lot of success on Instagram. You know, it's blown up our business, it's blown up Founder. And, you know, we ended up, people begged me to teach a course. I taught a course and now we want to launch, you know, 100 plus courses in the next year, uh, not next couple of years. So anyways, Austin is absolutely killing it on Instagram. You know, he's even sold like a $200,000 car and all sorts of crazy stuff off Instagram. So pretty much guys, there's something very, very special coming. If you want to you know, grab Instagram domination and a few of our other products at special prices, that's coming. So stay tuned for that. If you're not on our email list, make sure you are, because that's where you'll be getting the announcements on that stuff. But basically this is an insane mentoring session and you'll see after listening to this, the true power of mentorship. And I know you if you're an avid listener, you listen to the show, you're going to absolutely love this podcast. Um, I'm not going to ramble on. This is just an insane episode with a lot of strategy, problem solving, broken down really, really well. Uh, you're going to love it. You're going to learn tons. So that's it from me. Enough rambling. If you are enjoying these episodes, please do leave us a review. It helps us big time. Like I know you always hear this. Please. It takes you two seconds. If you could leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it, and please share this with your friends. All right, that's it from me. Now let's jump to the show, and I just want to say thank you so much for being part of the community. You are the reason we do what we do at Founder. We live to serve you and help you build and grow a successful business however we can with all of the content that we put out, free or premium, it doesn't matter. So I hope you have a fantastic day. I wish you nothing but success. I'll speak to you soon. Now let's jump to the show. All right, guys. So in today's podcast, it's a little bit of a mix-up where we've done these sessions before when we kind of call them the founder incubator, where what we do is we get like a really, really talented, smart founder, proven founder on here, and then we find someone in our community that's really, really, really smart and talented too, and probably, you know, a few years or, you know, a few, you know, just behind, like not, not at the same stage as that person, that really that successful founders at their journey yet. And we just pretty much, you know, become a fly on the wall and you get to hear like a mentorship session. And, uh, you know, we've, we've 
chosen somebody that uh, he's had a lot of success, uh, you know, producing a car company. His name's David Brim. He's here with me in the room right now. We've had a few technical difficulties because uh, David, yeah, he lives down the road, so we thought we'd do it in the office and the studio and yeah, it's been a nightmare, but we're there, we're here, it's all good. And the person uh, that we're speaking to on the other line is Austin and uh, his name's Austin Peterson and he runs a car company called Black Dog Traders. Now, Dave's had a lot of success with Tom Carr. He was in one of the early episodes where we interviewed him and and uh, as time has gone on, me and David have become great friends. So Austin runs a car company too, but he refurbishes 4x4 vintage land cruisers and David actually produces cars, which is really interesting. They're military vehicles uh, and uh, they're called Tomcar. So I'm going to leave it over to David and Austin and just kind of let these guys jam. But to kick things off, guys, can you just, first of all, both just, you know, for about a minute each, just share your journey and, you know, a little bit about your company and how far you've taken it and where you're at. And then I'll just let you go away, Austin, and just ask David as many questions as you like. So let's kick things off. So, yeah. Hey, Austin. So, yeah, my name's David Brim, and uh, I started Tom Car Australia in 2005, wow, 12 years ago now, uh, with my family here in Australia. We manufacture a specialist uh, military all-terrain vehicle called the Tom Car. We spent many years um, setting up a supply chain, and we started manufacturing in 2011. And we sell to the military, to mining industry and uh, agriculture here in Australia. So, look, I'm, I've checked out your, your company, Austin. It looks really cool. Love those old uh, cruisers. Um, very, very clever idea. So, yeah, I'd love to learn a bit more about you. And if I'd love to learn about your journey. And I'm sure there's so many similarities and problems we've both had and frustrations and opportunities. So happy to share what I can. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, Nathan's been telling me about you for a while, so I'm excited to kind of dig in on this. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, Nathan. Um, so for me, you know, I started out, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur since I was, since I was a kid. I don't know what it was. Um, I started out in the tech industry and I was in sales there and just always had an inclination for marketing. I don't know why I just was always in the marketing department and I would spend more time in the marketing department than in the sales department, really just trying to figure out and learn from them. And I would spend every day while I was at work reading and reading and reading blogs online um, about online marketing. Uh, eventually, I started a coffee company. And, you know, I honestly hate coffee. I don't know why I got into coffee, but uh, it, it's what led me to what I'm doing now. So I'm really grateful for it. So, uh, the coffee company sent me to South America and, you know, throughout my travels in Nicaragua and Colombia sourcing coffee beans, I saw all these amazing land cruisers. And my family has a bit of a background with, with restoring cars. My, all my cousins and uncles do it, but I was never really fully into it. And it's not something that I ever thought I would turn into a business. But when I saw these amazing trucks, I, I, I just really, it clicked back to that job that I had in the tech industry. And I remember my, my boss was really, really nuts about these trucks. So I started doing more research into the industry and finding out that it was a huge, huge market. 
I mean, not huge in terms of, you know, the ATV market or the SUV market, but it was a, it was a nice little niche to jump into. Um, and I really had a passion for it. I, I love the trucks. I love the outdoors. I love traveling and going to South America and things like that. Um, so it really all just kind of clicked and, uh, I started from there. So it wasn't like, I, I know from, from what I hear about you and Tom Carr, it seems like you didn't have like a traditional entry into the car market either. So, um, you know, that's kind of where, where I started out. I didn't, I didn't mean to end up in the industry, but I'm so glad that I ended up here. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's, I'm fascinated about how people end up doing what they do. I mean, most of the time we plan for things and the complete opposite happens. So you, you, where do you source all of the, so you take the, you buy an old land cruiser. What year cruisers do you buy? Do you, do you concentrate on one particular model? Yeah, so we concentrate on the 40 series and we concentrate on the later models, which were produced anywhere from, the, the ones that we concentrate on are anywhere from like 79 to like 83. So they're, they're I mean, 40 plus year old vehicles um, that, we're, that we have to restore. And over the years, we have just really listened to our customers and based on their feedback, kind of added and upgraded things along the way. So what do you do? What, can you talk me through the process of uh, how you get what you do to the cars once you get, where do you find these old vehicles? How do you find them? Then once you get them into your factory, um, what do you do to them? Yeah, so we, we scout the vehicles all over the place throughout Southeast Asia and South America. And what we really look for is something with good bones. And what that means is basically it's gotten no frame damage. It's uh, got decent metal with, with minimal rust. And really, it's just something that some local guy hasn't chopped to pieces or modified heavily. And then we, we take that. We, we, used to, um, we used to produce in Colombia, but we've been having an issue with production there being reliable. So we're building a, a larger factory here in Dallas, Texas so that we can produce everything locally here in the United States. But essentially, you know, we take the vehicle, uh, we import it into the United States, we take it to the shop, we completely strip it down to um, bare metal, and uh, the frame and everything, the chassis gets sandblasted, and from there we build it back up again. We take uh, parts like upgraded suspension from suppliers like Old Man Emu, we upgrade as much of the creature comforts as possible to make it a better driving experience for the end user because obviously, you know, a 40, 50 year old car is not really suited for modern excursions. Yeah, man, that's awesome. It's Nathan here. Um, really? <laughs> so I was, um, I think it would be really awesome for the audience if you could uh, share with like um, everyone your, I guess maybe. Like, how far you've taken it when you started Black Dog Traders? Um, so your traction right now that you're getting, because I know that you're, you're doing really well, but you also have some challenges too. So, and then we can kind of get David to jump in and start asking some more questions and you can ask David some questions as well. Yeah, so I got into the industry about two or three years ago. And originally I started just buying and selling Land Cruisers. And I just really wanted to deliver a better and better product along along the way and uh 
like I said, based on customer feedback, we started changing things and adding things. And our product really evolved just based on what our customers wanted and little cues that I heard people talking about over the telephone, you know, like I want something that I can use for a daily driver or I want something that I can use on my farm, something reliable, something safe for my family. But, you know, it all started really just flipping cars and selling cars. And uh, what kind of challenges have you had? I mean, where have you, where do you struggle? What kind of, you know, because I'd like to hear your main kind of challenges at the moment um, and maybe I can give some advice or my experience in that space. Yeah. So currently, you know, we're, we're doing pretty well in terms of our online marketing and sales. The real issue has been production and it's, it hasn't been really in terms of quality or anything, you know, I, I make sure that the quality is very high and everything's perfect, but it's reliability and consistency. And for me to be able to focus on building the brand and building the business, I need to make sure that that my building, my foundation is very strong and secure. And that's obviously my production. Um, so right now we're really focusing on bringing that up to speed and making sure that it's 100% consistent and reliable. That's our biggest issue in 2018. So do you, you make each vehicle the same? Uh, we have five different packages, but, uh, you know, for the most part, they're, they're pretty similar. Um, we originally started with the model that we would, you know, offer, let's say, 30 or 40 different um, optional upgrades, and you had a base package. Uh, but the issue that we found with that was that, number one, most people didn't really know what they wanted. And number two, it was it was just a really big problem trying to integrate that into our production system, right? Like, you know, there ended up being 50 or 60 different vehicles that you could produce based on those 40 or 50 different options. So um, we translated that into five different models, and it's been a lot easier for us to produce with the model system rather than, you know, um, a more custom build. Yeah, definitely. And how many parts are common between those five models that you offer? What percentage of the vehicle is identical? Uh, I would say about 70% of the vehicle is identical. The main things that we switch and, and deal with are the, um, the drivetrain, the engine, the transmission, um, the wheels, the suspension, you know, things like that. But for the most part, I mean, they're all restored vehicles. So they they retain a lot of the same parts. Oh, okay, so you, how much, how many of the original part, is that on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on the quality of the parts or the quality of the vehicle that comes in? Yeah, so, I mean, every vehicle that comes in is different, but like I said before, we, we search for trucks that all have good bones. Um, so we're looking for something that we don't have to replace much metal on, essentially. But when it when it comes down to it, you know, the metal, everything, we try to keep consistent across all five models. But really, it's just upgrading the, the suspension, the drivetrain, the sound system, you know, all of those different things that really translate into a better driving experience for, for the owner. Yeah, definitely. I think you're going to have struggles because each car is kind of unique. With Tom Car Australia, what we really try to do, so what we do is we offer a base platform. 
Um, but we have three models, a two-seater short wheelbase, um, a two-seater slightly longer wheelbase, and a five-seater. But they all share about 95% common parts. So we spent a long, long time designing the three base models to share common parts because the low volumes, you get economies of scale. And you can buy instead of 10 of one thing, you can buy 50 and it fits the whole range. And when it comes to options and accessories, like you mentioned before, people don't like, people don't know what they want, I agree with you. Um, but also, they don't like having too much choice. There are scientific studies that show if you give someone too much choice, they can't make a decision. So we offer maybe a dozen options and accessories, and that's it. We keep it really simple. We do custom work for people. But we only do that once they've purchased the car and decided what they do. So I think some things off the top of my head, I mean, it might be an idea to take every car that you get in, strip it down to the same level, strip every single car down to the same level, um, and then build the cars up like that, because then you're going to get economies of scale in that. I don't know how practical that is, um, but that's just one idea that I have at the moment. Yeah. Um... As far as stripping them down to the same level, every every truck gets stripped down to the exact same level. It gets basically we take a truck and we break it down to each individual component and it gets sorted into a cabinet. So we take a truck and then within a week or two, it goes from being a truck to being, you know, pieces in a cabinet on a wall. But the real I guess the issue is that you know, my, my experience is in, is in the business side of things and marketing and in sales. I have experience in, in restoring cars, but not to the extent that, that I could go and restore one fully myself. And I've spent a lot of time just learning and, and really diving into that side of things, but I'm really trying to bring it to the U S and dealing with the issues of labor there in the united states and trying to like you said take something that like you said every every truck comes in and it's different but we also have to bring it into sort of like a factory environment and somehow get it to where it's more of an assembly line rather than a completely custom build yeah so one thing that we decided very early on at tomka australia was to we didn't, I don't know about manufacturing, right? I'm, I'm a businessman, entrepreneur, whatever you want to call it nowadays, but we had a dream of building this product. And I know manufacturing has been around for over 100 years. It's a science. It's not an art. It's a science. Um, and there are specialist organizations out there, manufacturers, that build things every day. So we were very lucky that we partnered with a company here in Melbourne called MTM. And MTM are an automotive tier one components supply to the car industry. So they have this very automotive thinking. So one option may be for you to explore. I don't know what the automotive um, supply chain is like in, uh, in Dallas, but you know to, to outsource the manufacturing or assembly of your, of your cars might be a good idea, a way to go because then you can concentrate on what you're good at. Yeah. I've, I've, I mean, we tried that before. We partnered with some, some guys that had been doing this for a while. And I think the issue was that they, for some reason, I don't know why, they uh, really didn't see the big picture. 
and they have been kind of they have they've been unreliable in terms of delivery schedules in terms of you know pricing in terms of everything so now i'm trying to bring it in where i feel like i can control it more by hiring a shop manager and building out my own shop i don't know if that's the right answer but that's my instinct to kind of move it's one option definitely um you incur a lot of costs a lot of problems you've got a steep learning curve um, that's one of the reasons why we went to an automotive supplier to outsource to. They think differently. Um, you know, you need a partner, first of all, or, or a, a supplier to build your cars that believes in your dream, that believes in your vision. Um, so if these two guys, these couple who helped you before didn't believe and didn't see the opportunity, it's never going to work. You need someone that shares the passion of the market. So, I mean, for me, for Tom Car Australia, outsourcing is the only reason we're here. I mean, if we had to do it ourselves, I don't know if we could have learned that quick enough and fast enough. But uh, it's, the opportunity is there, and it's it's an exciting one. But what's the, is there a big manufacturing base in Dallas? I mean, you, do you live in Dallas? Yeah, I live in Dallas. I mean, the funny thing is, is that these are Toyota Land Cruisers, and Toyota, the Toyota headquarters actually moved from... Torrance, California to Plano, Texas, which is right where we are. But it's kind of an issue that, you know, the, the guys who, the, who know a lot about, um, you know, process and know a lot about building new cars don't know very much about build, building up or restoring old cars. And then it's kind of the opposite effect with the guys who are good at restoring old cars, right? Like they're good at working on engines. They're good at doing body work but they're not very good at business or managing teams or being able to install any sort of process or scale anything. So it's, interesting. it's kind of a, a rabbit hole that we've fallen into. And the only issue, the only way that I've really, and I've been racking my brain for, you know, six months on this is, is I really just think I have to bring it in and find someone who can run the shop who knows how to, restore a classic car, but then also bring in people who are engineers and more on the industrial engineer, engineering side and know how to in, in, install some of the process and things like that that'll speed things up and make it more organized. Let me, let's just, sorry to cut in there, but you bring the car in, you strip it down to the chassis, right? And then you sandblast it, clean it up and bring it back in. Now, when you've taken that car apart originally, you'll go through all of the pieces that come off the car and pick things that can be reused, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've taken them off. Do you use Toyota's part numbering system or do you use your own part numbers? Well, for, for a lot of these parts, there's not really a Toyota part number, but for the majority of the ones that we actually have to buy, they, they still sell Toyota parts, so we use the Toyota SKUs. Cool. So what I would do, this is just random, I don't know if it would work, but I would bring the car in, strip it down, I would have a holding area, like a supply area for stock. So let's say, for example, I don't know, the steering wheel. So you need the steering wheel, the assembly, steering wheel assembly, and it's probably made up of 15 parts. I would strip the steering wheel down and then either itemize them myself, give them new my own numbers, part numbers, and store them. 
And then when I would push a car through the system, if someone ordered a car, I would take a chassis, give it a special VIN or keep the VIN that it's got, push it down the line, and then I would then pull parts to the car. So what I'm trying to say is, let's say you can manage to salvage, let's say you get 10 cars in and you manage to salvage three steering wheels that you can reuse. I'd put those steering wheels in stock and then I would buy seven new steering wheels and put them in with that stock and then just consume them. You don't necessarily have to have that part that needs to go back to that car. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I'm trying to say? You can actually, you're, you're doing less customization. You're, you're cannibalizing these cars that are coming in, taking as many parts as you can off, putting those parts into your stores and then just using the chassis and then consuming the parts from stores, which are a mix of um, cannibalized parts and new parts. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we're, we do that to an extent now, but I definitely see where you're coming from. Um, what we can do is there, there's some new and some old parts that we have to use. So we could buy more, more parts cars than we currently do and just have an inventory mm -hmm. of of uh you know swappable parts for those do you have a bill of materials for the cars another thing that i would do is i would it might take time but i'd strip the car down and name every, give everything a part number i'd give it your own part number if i was you and then create a bill of materials which is and it, it it's in build order so you have a list of every single part that goes into that car and then you have a stock control I mean, that was the biggest thing for us. I mean, we were starting from scratch, so we had to create a bill of materials, which is basically a list of every single component in the car. Um, and we created it to build level. So at least then we've got something that we can follow. And we know that bill of materials dictates our stock and it dictates our ordering and it dictates the process the car's put together. The, the challenge I see for you is that you're, you're, there's an extra level in there. You're... You're bringing cars in, you're stripping them down first. And it's that process of stripping them down where you're kind of reworking the car. So there's the challenge there. If you were building a car from scratch, if you had to buy a Land Cruiser chassis and everything from scratch, um, local fabricator to make it, you, would, you wouldn't have that challenge. You'd just buy stock in, a car would go through the system and you'd build it. So you almost want an extra level in your production and even an extra area, which is just stripping cars down. What you're doing is you're buying these cars for stock. So you're stripping everything down, repainting good stuff, preparing the chassis, chucking away stuff that's obsolete, or even putting stuff aside. It's what we do when we get used parts back from our customers. We put them in a special area and then once every few months we'll refurbish them and then we can sell them as refurbished parts but you could actually use them in your production system as well we've been talking about kind of creating a buffer where we have you know chassis come in cars come in we strip them down and essentially before anyone even orders them we've got them all ready to go and what that does is it, it makes sure that we've got all our parts ordered before or as soon as as soon as a customer places an order. And also, um, you know, we've got 100 percent accountability for everything that goes that goes through the entire process. 
and it and it also speeds up the actual time that it takes for us to do a restoration, right? Like if we have a buffer of, let's say, 10 or 20 trucks that we've already got stripped, we've already got um, itemized, like you were mentioning with different parts numbers, then uh, there's, there's less of an issue chasing things around. Um, and also we've done about 30% or 40% of the labor up front before a customer even orders the truck. So it takes 30 to 40% less time to produce the vehicle. Definitely. I think that is, even your computer thought that was a good idea. It did a little bells thing when you say, <laughs> listen, that is, I, I would do it like this. I would source, I'd have a sourcing department or a sourcing team. And they would scour the globe for these cars. I'd ship them into Dallas. I'd put them aside. I'd have them reviewed. I'd strip them down. I'd have a full list of all of the parts that go into a car, the, your base model, right? You'll just base what you need, base. And I would then have a stock control system, an inventory system where I would need, let's say, at least 20 of each. If you get 20 cars in, strip them down, and you manage to fulfill the 20 spare parts or the parts in your inventory, great. But what you're missing, you'd need to buy new versions. And then, but the chassis are the main starting point and they should all be identical so i would strip them all down to the chassis you know sandblast them powder coat them and have them in stock as you said so when you get orders in you just pull a chassis onto the line and then just take out of inventory even if that steering wheel didn't come from that car so you're not actually restoring it what you're doing is you're building a new you know land cruiser but using an original chassis and some original parts, but what it's different for each one you build because the idea of restoring something adds, as you said, as you know, adds a lot of complications. But if you can create more of a production facility where the the you know, the cars coming in are just being cannibalized for parts across the board across every model you're using, I think you'll find it an easier challenge to do that yourself. Yeah, I see where you're coming from, where we've already prepped everything. And essentially, at that point, when a customer orders a truck, it's it's really just assembly and final prep. That's exactly it. It's basically what we do. So you, we buy the parts from our suppliers, put them on a shelf. But you're doing the same thing. You're, doing, you're buying supply parts from some suppliers, but then you're sourcing all the other stuff like the chassis, which you can't buy anymore, from original vehicles, but you prepare them and prep them, and they're ready for production. Yeah, that's definitely a good idea. It takes it more, like you said, from, from a restoration to more of a production vehicle. Correct, and your customers, you can, you can use that in your marketing because you're, you're offering a, you know, a restored car is great, but a restored car also, as you said, it gives this kind of, People th assume a restored car is, you know, very handmade, very, it's almost, it's not modern, really. I mean, what you're doing is you're bringing these Land Cruisers up to 2017 standards. You're putting, you know, great sound systems in, amazing suspension, comfortable seats, all this kind of stuff. Um, and they're buying, people are buying these cars because they look amazing and they, drive amazing you know the, the center of gravity is great they're fantastic cars these were the best land cruisers that 
ever been made. And people want one, but Toyota don't make them anymore. So this way, you're giving them a production standard vehicle. Yeah, definitely. Another thing that I kind of wondered about was um, we're here in Dallas, Texas, and we've got a team here, but obviously Dallas, Texas can only reach so far. So, I mean, with your with your company there in Australia, how did you go about building an offline network of people who could go and, you know, provide, you know, like a, a test drive or basically just help you to push these vehicles and sell these vehicles um, so that someone's not having to constantly come to where, where you are? Yeah, I think you guys in America suffer a similar thing to Australia, the tyranny of distance, whereas in, a, in America you have more of an infrastructure, a transport infrastructure to get to people. Uh, look, that's been our main challenge, especially with the Tom Car vehicle. It's so unique, it's so different that you have to drive it. Um, uh, so what we, what we, look, we've had to do old school leather, shoe leather wearing. We've, we've been driving all over Australia going to farm shows, going to properties, um, you know, our mar we don't have the margins to have a dealer network. So we sell on the internet like you. Um, the biggest challenge is to get people to physically see the car. And that is a challenge full stop. And the only way to do, to overcome that is to either have a dealer network, to find a group of dealers that believe in what you're doing and there's enough margins in it for you to sell to them. And now in the car industry, the margins are quite small. The margins in the car industry are anywhere from five to 10%, that's it. So if you have five to 10% margins, you should maybe look at um, some dealers across the states. We sell direct and it's hard that way, it's harder. I'd love a dealer network, we just don't have the, the margins, but also there's a benefit of selling direct to customers where we can hear them and hear their feedback and, and change the cars relatively quickly. But that yeah. is just, that's where your marketing skills come in. That's where your branding skills and that's where, that's where that comes in. Yeah, so I think we've done a good job kind of separating ourselves from the market. The in the United States, for these for these types of vehicles, there's really only two levels, right? There's there's the very very low end, which is guys who you know just slap these things together and sell them for forty forty five thousand dollars, and then there's guys like me who who take a lot of time, you know, nine twelve months to build these trucks and um, sell them for a lot more, but it's a it's a much higher quality restoration. Um, there's only a few people who are doing in the higher level and uh obviously it's a lot more work but i think it's the way to go and i really don't want to i would not want to sell anything subpar myself so we've really been trying to separate ourselves and be able to charge more especially since we're we're producing in the united states now um but really define ourselves as more of a high quality brand yeah, you should always do that. It's very powerful to have a, an aspirational brand, and that's where your margins come in and you can afford. I mean, we're the most expensive product on the market by ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000. It's a huge jump for people to buy our vehicle. 
but we offer them stuff they can't buy anywhere else. I mean, we don't compete on price. We compete on quality, ease of maintenance, safety, performance, things like that. Uh, we don't compete on price, and I don't think you should either. I mean, people that are the demographic that are going to be buying your car want the best of the best, and they're reminiscing about these vehicles, and they want one, and, and rightly so. And I think you could cut that nine to 12 months down if you commercialize the, the disassembly of the original the donor vehicles and have them in stock. You could, you could speed that up. That might help as well. Yeah, one idea that we had, um, and this is something that we would have to do down the line, obviously, but one idea that we had was to set up a, a shop in, in Mexico, right across the border from us here in Texas, where we would strip the chassis, strip the vehicles, and ship them up in you know five-to-one container, where shipping cost is minimized, the cost of labor is minimized, because, I mean, the cost of labor is... I'm sure you deal with this as well in Australia, but it's 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 insane. Um, and I'm not saying that that the guys who build these these trucks for us are not deserving the amount that they're getting, but um, it when you're building something that takes you know 700, 1,000, 1,500 hours of labor, it really starts eating in, especially when you're paying you know thirty dollars an hour. Correct, and that's why you need to have a really effective assembly process. The key here is for you. So I would, I didn't know, look, if you have a secure, manageable opportunity in Mexico, I would ship all the cars you buy around the world directly to Mexico, get them to strip them down. In one container, put all of the chassis. In the other container, put all of the pieces. Ship them to you in Dallas. You guys go through them put what you want, redo, refurbish what you want, then build the cars yourselves. If the pulling apart of the car is a huge labor cost, do get that done somewhere else. So you have to think of yourself as an assembler, as a manufacturer, not a restorer. You know, you're not restoring these. You are restoring them, but you, you don't want to restore them. You can't go on to scale as a restorer. So you need to think differently. And if you can send these cars to a, a more affordable place to strip them down, dump all the parts carefully, obviously, in a container, ship it back to you. If that's cheaper than you pulling them apart yourself, right there you've saved dozens of man hours. Yeah. So what what are some of the biggest issues that you guys have faced over the years and something that you think would kind of translate to where we're going? Because obviously you're, you know, years ahead of where we're where we're trying to be. Well, look, we spent many, we spent a year before we built the first car working with our supplier, manufacturing partner, to design and develop a parts management system. So basically, we digitized what's called Kanban, the Japanese Toyota, build their cars using a system called Kanban, and it's Japanese for card. Basically, parts follow through the system. There's no scheduling needed. So we push parts. We have a purchasing department. They buy all the parts, 2,500 parts for the car. We bring them into the country. We stock them. We store them. And then we pull them to the line. So what happens is we split the car into uh, what we call kits. 
So, for example, the steering column is a kit. Steering wheels, all the column, the collapsible, all of that comes in and we split it up and we push it to the line. And the line then takes the kit when they need it and build the sub-assembly, which then goes into the vehicle. So we spent a long time planning the, the process of building it and how we put the car together. Now, you can do exactly the same thing, but your big challenge is that you're sourcing components that come from donor vehicles. So you need to kind of commercialize that bit and streamline that bit. You need to bring the donor vehicles in, strip them down, paint the chassis, have the chassis in stock, strip everything else down, decide what you can use, put what you can use in stock, top up what you're missing by buying new or replica versions or even sourcing them yourself and designing them and building them, you know, having a supplier build them specifically for you. And then you, as the car goes down the line, you just assemble stuff. So that's the, the biggest challenge, as you said, is manufacturing. I mean, that's why we outsource it. We're very lucky to have found a company like MTM. They understand what we're trying to do. The owner, Mark Albert, has the same passion as me. He, he, you know, we want to build this thing together. So that's the key. You need to find someone that really gets your passion. Um, the other challenges that we've had over the years, and they're very, they might be uniquely Australian, I don't know. Australian culture is very pro-American, American products. We've, ironically, we've, it's been a struggle to prove to Australians to buy Australian. It's a very strange thing, um, but that's been another big challenge for us. And at the end of the day, it's getting bums in seats and getting people to drive the car. So that, that's kind of interesting that you have an issue with trying to get Australian people to believe in Australian products. But um, how, what does your sales process look like and your sales funnel look like? Because that's something that, that I think we've done really well, but I also would like to hear kind of what yours is so that I can glean anything that you're doing and uh, try and incorporate that into ours. Well, I'd, I'd go back over the founder podcast archive and listen to every single one. There's gems of knowledge in there, right, Nathan? So look, what we do is we have a number of um, funnel. So we try and grab as many people from the internet. We use a Melbourne-based company called uh, Lead Chat, and that's been fantastic. So we, we try and put as many people in the funnel as we can. So we have a, a, a human being chatting on the website to people that are interested, get their name, their email, goes into the funnel we do a lot of social media we targeted social media we do a lot of road trips so we'll drive over three or four days one of my sales guys will take a tom car and drive through rural australia and we'll strategically target facebook ads through that journey maybe take an ad in a local paper uh, speak to local customers then we'll also go to farm shows. The agricultural shows are quite popular here in Australia where communities come and buy product. They're quite expensive and time-consuming, but we do pick the main ones. Also PR. We do a lot of PR. I can't underestimate the power of public relations. And what I mean by PR is just getting into the press, going to the press, building relationships with journalists, You know, follow your local journals on Twitter, comment on them, and then eventually just try and get them to come and do a story on you. So it's a fantastic opportunity. And just hustle, mate. Just 
That's all you can do. You just got to keep pushing. You know, companies like ours don't have the marketing resources that our competitors do. You know, Polaris and Can-Am and John Deere, Yamaha, Honda. So you have to be smart. You have to do things that aren't scalable um, and do them until you get to scale. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely uh, uh, a huge burden trying to deal with uh, competitors like that. I mean, you're, you're dealing with that more than I am, um, but I can definitely see what you, what you mean. What do you think are some of the things that I should focus on immediately like, and really drive for in the next year? I'd really look at your production. I'd break it down. I would whiteboard it. I would break each bit down that you do now and try and universalize bits. Commonalize, that's right. Commonalize, is that a real word? Commonize. <laughs> Commonize it and standardize. Break it down and make them, yeah, standardize the process because then it's, you can do it again and again and again. So, the, and, and change your company's mindset from being a restorer to offering a 2017 version of, a, of the Land Cruiser, you know, the, the 70. That's what I would do. Well, that's what we've kind of changed or shifted in terms of our, our branding recently. And really the huge, like you said, the huge thing is really just figuring out how to get the production standardized. Um, I really appreciate your insight on all this, man. It's, it's great. Um, I'd love to talk more. I know you guys are very busy. So um, I think, you know, it, I think we've, just about taking all of the time um, that we had scheduled for this. I don't want to, I don't want to go over. Oh, good, Austin. I'm, I'm just here, just jumping in. This has been a beautiful conversation. And look, we are, uh, maybe, maybe one last question for David and then uh, we'll work towards wrapping up. Uh, so, so my, really my biggest question revolves around, um, I, I, I heard something about brand ambassadors that you had kind of set up for your own company in another podcast that you guys had done. So I was really wondering how you went about doing that. Would you recommend, you know, going to social media and finding people who are in my niche and have a lot of followers to go and become brand ambassadors or just try and find customers who are really passionate about the cars? So we did... Yeah, we had what we call we called them brand ambassadors, that, but they were basically customers with cars that were willing to show the car to strangers that we pushed towards them, and they would get uh, a small payment in lieu of that. They'd get a cheaper car, they were allowed to buy a cheaper car, and then they would be able to show people the car and they'd get commission. The problem there is that 90% were crap, they were just trying to buy a cheaper car and they didn't have the passion or the knowledge of the vehicle to really on-sell it. So it didn't really work. But there was a 10% group of, of brand ambassadors that loved the car, loved the product, loved what we were trying to do and sold and allowed us to sell a lot of cars. Um, you know, we're looking at actually, we've discontinued that idea. And what we've done is we've brought it internally. So we have sales teams now that are basically brand ambassadors that are on the payroll, that have a Tom car and a new Land Cruiser, and they drive around Australia showing cars. But they're basically an old school 1920s sales force that just 
uh, you know, wear their shoe leather out and knock on doors and just go to uh, remote communities and show the tomcats. That has been the most effective way that we've been able to get to customers. Brand ambassadors, I think, is the idea. The name has changed a bit. Yes, you can find a very famous person on Instagram who's got lots of followers and maybe take him out for the day, get him to, to, to show pictures on his, on his feed and stuff. That will help too. Uh, but I think you need a sales person, a dedicated sales person that is calling and just trying to close. Okay. I, I think the, one of the issues with that would be that it seems like you guys are a little bit higher production volume than, I mean, obviously you are, but um, so there's not really any way for us to hire a team of, you know, people that, that can take one of these trucks because literally all our production capacity is filled up with our customers. Yeah, um, I, I even have a hard time when people ask me, you know, can we come and check out one of the trucks? It's like, you know, I, I would love to, but um, they're all sold. <laughs> but that's a good thing as well. So I would look, then I would really focus on increasing your production. The way you'd increase production would be to streamline it, to standardize the main parts, outsource the, the stripping down of the vehicles, start looking at it from a different angle, start analyzing production lines, production flows, go and visit a car company, go and visit uh, manufacturing, go and visit more manufacturers, especially automotive component suppliers who have more of the, uh, the Kanban systems and the, uh, the, the more streamlined Japanese way of looking at production and then try yeah. and implement that into your own thing. So one thing, one last question, one thing that I have been kind of looking at is I'm, I'm looking at hiring a shop manager here in the next month or two uh, for Dallas, but I've been kind of torn between hiring someone who is from a modern car company and knows more about, like you said, like Kanban, um, the Toyota Way and all those principles and more about like large scale production or hiring someone who really knows what he's doing in terms of restoring a car. They're both great, but I would pick the first one. But don't blame me if it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd go with the first one because that's what you want. You want someone to come and look at it and go, well, this is a fucking mess. We need to clean this up. We need to make it more like Toyota. Okay, you don't want to make it more like, a, yes, the restorer. But the problem with the restorer is that he's an artisan. Okay, He's, he's almost an artist. You don't want an artist building each of your cars. You want a scientist. You want a robot. You want to make each car to be identical. It's using different parts, maybe different levels of new versus uh, reused or recycled parts. But they're all the same level of quality. But you want someone to look at the whole process and go, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to outsource this. A restorer will just come in and do what he's always done. Right? You're trying to kind of almost disrupt the restoration industry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree. That's what, what I was kind of thinking as well. But I, I mean, here in Dallas, I've only got, uh, you know, my dad who's in construction and my guy and my uncles who restore cars to lean on for, uh, for advice. So I wasn't really sure which way to go. Awesome. Well, look, um, that was, that was an amazing conversation. And, uh, yeah, we'll look. Um, we'll look forward to uh, to wrapping there. But just as a final question, um, 
Austin, first of all, would you be able to share uh, where the best place is people can find out more about yourself and your work at Black Dog Traders? And then uh, we'll, I'll move it to David. But wow, guys, that was that was amazing. Um, thank you so much both for your time. Yeah, you know, I'd like to say again, thanks, David, for your time. That that was uh, really great. Really cleared up a lot of things for me. Um, and I think 2018 is going to be amazing. But uh, you can check us out at www.blackdogtraders.com or follow us on our Instagram at blackdogtraders. Um, we post all kinds of cool photos of our builds and trucks and more and more content every day of little excursions that we're going on with these things. So, yeah, check it out. Yeah, cool, man. I've checked it out. It's 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 amazing, actually. Um, Tom Carr, the W's, tomcar.com.au. Um, and mainly we're on Facebook, my Tom Carr. But uh, yeah, go and buy a Land Cruiser, mate. Don't buy a Tom Carr. <laughs> <laughs> I think that uh, they should buy both. Correct. You should buy one of your cars and then trailer a Tom Carr behind it. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much, guys, for uh, both taking the time, making this possible. This is an incredible conversation. And, and I hope everyone listening, you got, you got a real insight of just the power of, of just like mentorship and learning from other people that have been ahead of you along the journey and just how much that can shave off time. Now, I'm sure Austin's got an incredible amount of knowledge that he's just kind of just picked from, from David, which has been incredible. So, We'll wrap there, guys, but I uh, hope you all both have a fantastic day wherever you are around the world, and uh, I'll speak to you all soon. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.